Hello, I'm Kate Kerr, the Director of Research at HemeNet. I'd like to welcome you to today's HemeCast, which is about the complexities and conundrums in consent that we face in our day-to-day practice. I'm delighted to be joined by Nikki Curry, who's a consultant in the Oxford Haemophilia and Thrombosis Centre, and also by Keith Gomez, who's a consultant in the Haemophilia Centre at the Royal Free Hospital in London. So uh, thank you both for joining today when we're going to talk about consent. Um, So could I just start off by asking you what you do in your current daily practice with regard to consent for treating people with bleeding disorders? Nikki. So um, that's a very broad question um, because I guess we have implied consent for treating people who um, come to us who require who are bleeding. Um, and I suppose in that sense, we don't ask for formal consent for, from them to, for them to receive treatment. We assume implied consent by them seeking our care and for us providing our care. Um, and we do always ask them if we're able to take blood and if we're able to give them treatment. So we would use verbal complied, implied consent. And where I work, we have adults only, so we don't really need to ask except for patients who have some difficulty in understanding, we generally don't need to ask other people for consent for that patient or assent for treatment of that patient. In terms of the places where consent is required in more detail for patients who require surgery, we would consent, we take consent from those patients, but usually in our practice, certainly, and I think this is across the country, it is the person who is undertaking the procedure that takes consent from that patient. So we generally are not particularly involved with that, although we would perhaps provide advice to the surgeon about how much more likely that person were to bleed potentially in the treatment that they would require for that. In terms of consent for genetic testing, which I think certainly since I've been a consultant, which has only been eight years, there has been quite a difference in the way that we take consent for that procedure now certainly a few years ago when I was a registrar and now when I was an early consultant we would always take consent for a patient to have their genetic testing performed but it was perhaps in a way that was asking purely consent for the patient to have blood samples taken from them it didn't really have the wider implications of taking that genetic sample because we were looking simply at single genetic defects so for example we were looking at haemophilia so we'd be testing just one gene and the von Willebrand's gene and we didn't have quite such a large array of tests available to us but I think and I'll let Keith expand on this but I think since we have now extended our genetic testing into next generation sequencing panels where you're looking at a much broader group of genes we are moving into a world that we perhaps haven't been so familiar with and it is becoming something that we I certainly recognize as an area that we need to be better at in terms of ensuring that the patient fully understands what they're having done prior to them taking that blood sample. Sorry, that was a long-winded answer. I don't mean to be. No, but I think it's a difficult conversation once you start thinking about it. Yes, exactly, because that was a very broad question (laughs) for that reason, I guess. And Keith, anything that you think differently there? Not not differently, but I I think Nikki's touched on some of the interesting, you know, points about why we take consent for certain things and, and the fact that many things are implied in that someone comes along and they want to know about their bleeding symptoms, for example, then of course, 
implicit in that is an agreement that we'll have some investigations and we don't take a consent for doing a full blood count, for example. No. And I think that, um, so, you know, why do we do it for genetics? And I think, you know, if we think back historically, I remember when I first started, we used to take consent for doing HIV testing, for example, which um, we don't know because it's sort of more routine and we expect that's part of, the, part of, the, part of what you're doing. And I think the thing about genetics there is that it's about making sure that the person who's having the test understands the all about that test, risks and benefits of the test. And there are some risks involved. And, and I think it's for that reason that we take consent partly so that it's informed, people know why we're doing it and what they can get from it. And I think understanding what you can get from it is important because it's, as Nikki said, when it was single gene analysis and it was relatively simple and we just only assumed that that variant was the cause of something, it's not quite so clear cut now sometimes. And I guess it's about understanding, you know, how likely is this going to be to confirm or not confirm or, or, or prove the diagnosis? What are the likelihood that we're going to find something? What are, we, what are the likelihood we're going to find something else really? So that's, re I think, really why we do it. And I also think as well now, previously when we did single gene, often it was really simply, as Keith says, to look at the patient, that single patient that's sitting in front of you. Whereas now, when we're looking at multiple genes, it's more about the patient being aware that that is a, we're doing a test that is applicable. I mean, it did apply when it was single gene as well, but this test is applicable to the whole of their family and that it isn't simply their data, it is actually family data that we are now looking at. And I think that's quite important and that they recognize that there is potentially, we won't have a clear cut answer. And I think that's really difficult to convey to patients actually in a way that we can provide them with information that they understand. So I guess it's it's fairly easy if you're looking for you know a mutation that causes haemophilia, it's there and then you can find out who's a carrier or who isn't a carrier. But all of these new tests where we're looking at genomics and, and finding things that might or might not mean something to somebody's sister or auntie or daughter or granddad or somebody else, how do you think that is different to just doing a haemophilia genetic test? Well, well, I might, you know, we've had some examples where there have been implications for other people. And I think it's easy, if, it's easy perhaps if you think about specific cases. And, and, you know, let's, even with single gene analysis, we always have the possibility, for example, like non-paternity, for example. And, it, and, you know, that doesn't happen very often. But when it, the few occasions that it has happened, it, it was a whole lot easier to deal with it if the groundwork had been done beforehand and it didn't come as a complete, Kind of, you know, I didn't even know that that was an option. And so I think we do have, to, I mean, you know, to give you an example, as you say, something as simple as haemophilia. So I, I, we only recently had a case where it, it was a thrombocytopenia and a patient was referred and the presumed diagnosis was type 2B rhombilibrats because they had a family history of rhombilibrats. So we thought, well, it's going to be type 2B. And that was all that was discussed. Off they went for a genetic test. There wasn't a lot of discussion. It turned out that they did have a one with a brand variant, but it wouldn't cause thrombocytopenia. In fact, what they also had was a Welts one variant. And that came as a big shock to that patient, but it then fitted with the history because it turned out that they did have, or well, their father had basically died at a relatively young age from, from a hematological malignancy, you see. And I think it's that, that, you know, then 
put it all together. And I have to say that that would the whole uh, whole discussion would have, you know, it, it's because of what we're used to. But because it was the difficulty there was that this was not what that person was expecting, but it then did have implications for their whole family. Whereas what they had originally been thinking of was, uh, you know, I'm just going to find out the cause of my. Well, I think I have already got one with friends, and in fact, that's that's not what turned out. So that's an example of where I think having that discussion up front and saying, well, this is what we're likely to find, but these are the other possibilities. Um, and I'm not saying it needs to be, you know, not saying it would have necessarily need to be much more than that, but I think that would have then made that easier for that person. I think it's, I think also, because just for people who don't know, there is a there is now a panel that you can apply to get tested called the bleeding panel that you send off to um, genetic centers and it has about 100 genes on it and few about three or four are associated with cancer hematological cancer mostly and um it's important that the the people that are having their blood sample taken recognize that and understand that but i had interestingly i had a mother and a daughter in clinic with me and i taught them both through it because there was a family history of bleeding and so on they had a thrombocytopenia and the daughter wanted to know and was happy to have the whole panel tested and the mother didn't which made it very difficult because then because if you do test one then and it comes back as a positive for one of these hematologically associated cancers then you're you're kind of stuck and so at the time we decided not to test either of them but i think it does throw up the issue of what are you going to do if you know that your your brother said i don't want to know it does make it quite tricky how to how to extend that because you wouldn't really want them not to um be followed up i guess and what do you think the difference is if those patients are children? <laughs> well, I, I so I don't as you as you know I don't treat children, so I haven't so far had to do <laughs> had to do that. But uh, I, I do completely appreciate that it brings on a whole extra level uh, of complexity and a whole other other burden because you're asking a parent to then make decisions in a way that might have far-reaching consequences and I and I do appreciate that and I think we have found that whereas many people are perhaps more willing to I say at risk when I say put some themselves at risk you know if, if you talk about risks and benefits to accept those risks for themselves and then if you go but, you know, but the same, they might apply a slightly different threshold for their children. Um, and I understand that. And I think, um, I think it is difficult. And I, I, I you know, probably a, a lot of effort needs to be spent and time allocated, which is not something that most of us have in our day-to-day -day working lives, to try and assess those and, and see what can be done to help someone through those decisions. Um, but yes, I, I clearly it does have an added level of complexity. It is quite interesting, Kate, that you asked that because again, I also only work with adults, but when we have our, our haemophilia patients who transition, we do run through and re-ask them that they're happy that we have their genetic information on, on um, file, et cetera. And we, most people just say yes, but we have had just a couple of um, young adults say, well, why did you do that? I didn't, well, you know, and, it's relatively easy for haemophilia to say, well, actually we needed to know, we needed to confirm the genetic change because that has, that can influence how we provide treatment for you. So there's a relatively straightforward answer to that. But I think there's much less of a straightforward answer currently 
for platelet defects where we generally treat all platelet defect patients the same you know although I guess in 10-15 years time when we know all about these variants and we know how their outcomes are and how their their disease perhaps develops we may have different treatments but right now we don't and I think it is quite difficult actually and I don't have an answer. So I'm going to ask you something else that you might not have the answer to then which is the very tricky conundrum of what do we do with girls who are potential carriers who are little. So you've just said we would happily take the blood from that newly diagnosed eight months old baby boy with haemophilia with no consent at all, apart from from his parents. And yet when they have a daughter, we can't or won't or don't carry a test her. And some centres don't even do a factor eight level. What would you do? And what? why do you think we do something different for girls to boys? Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's not so easy to answer, is it? However, f- from what we do in our centre, Currently, what we do is we recognise patients that young girls who are either obligate carriers or who are potential carriers, and we place them on our local database so that we, because previously we did sometimes lose track of these patients. So now we have them on our database so that when they reach the age of 16, we take verbal consent from their parents to say, we will be contacting you as parents when this, when your daughter reaches 16, and we will be inviting them for genetic testing. We also uh, recommend that all of these obligate and potential carriers have their factor eight or nine level checked at around the time of starting school or prior to any surgery, if they have any prior to that, but usually they won't. We tend not to do genetic testing until the age of consent, because in many ways, what we need to do from a clinical point of view is we need to know whether their factor eight or nine level is low. And so from that point of view, we, we, we recommend to the parents that they have the eight or nine level checked, particularly because these girls are going to reach the menarche, they may have high, heavier periods, etc. But from a clinical point of view, you don't need to adjust how you manage them according to their genetics. So I guess that's partly how we think of it. Um, I know some centres do do genetics at an age under the age of consent, but I think it's important that we have the time with the potential or obligate carrier to talk about what it all means for them to ask questions and for them to feel that they take responsibility for their own, because it's their fertility health, isn't it, really, that's the most important issue? I I think we would adopt adopt the same approach, really. I I, I would be surprised if people don't do any testing at all, because we we don't want to undiagnose, or sorry, misdiagnose rather, uh, carriers, certainly. you know, I, I think knowing someone's factor eight or factor nine level is important um, for the reasons that Nikki said. So I'm, I, I don't think we would not do that. But I agree. I don't think that probably the carrier status in terms of genetics will perhaps make a huge difference at, at that age for a girl's management. And in fact, I think the same would be true. I, I do the same if someone's got factor 11 deficiency, for example. Um, I do say to the parents, look, is it, you know, this is mostly an asymptomatic condition in and you're largely asymptomatic. So <laughs> your child is very much likely to be asymptomatic. So there probably isn't a need to kind of subject someone to a blood test just for the sake of knowing, if you like. And these things can be deferred a bit uh, until, unless they need an operation or something like that. And I, I think here, yeah, genetic testing, if it, if it's not going to, if it's unlikely to make a, a difference for that person's management at that time, then 
it probably would make sense to to defer it to a point when the individual can make their own decision. Yeah, I think I probably agree with you. One of the things I think is quite interesting is that patients and their families think that we all know absolutely everything about them and that we all all know everything about them. And I suppose one of my slight concerns for the future as haemophilia becomes so much more treatable and we lose contact perhaps with the men with haemophilia is what are we doing in terms of making sure that we know that they've got that daughter that is going to be born in five years time that they'll forget to tell us about. So it's about protecting the future children of the world of haemophilia as well as the ones we've got now. So what do you think we should do in terms of the National Haemophilia Database? This had to come up, didn't it, for us in the UK? <laughs> well, I, I think, okay, I, I can talk about that a little bit. because So, of course, the aim here, which we've had in place for a while now, is that we've got, we've got capacity, capability in the National Haemophilia Database to capture genetic information. Um, and uh, both Nikki and I are on the genetics working party and we keep an eye on that. And when it was introduced, there was a bit of a surge and genetic information got put on the National Haemophilia Database. And then rather disappointingly, it's been stuck at the same level of, okay, so to give you an idea that the, if you look nationally and take all of our haemophilia A and B patients, about 30% have a genetic diagnosis recorded on the National Haemophilia Database. And um, in some regions, it it's goes down to single figures, despite the fact that we know that actually when you do um, more just verbal surveys, then probably the amount of genetic diagnosis is certainly above 80%, 90%, something like that. So there's obviously an awful lot that's not going on there. And the reason for that is difficult to, well, we, there are some reasons, but partly it's to do with workload in genetics laboratories. And there may be other reasons as well, but it is complex information. And I think getting that on there is, uh, and, so, and so you have to have expertise to put it on there. And that's one of the barriers. But the idea is that you would then be able to much more easily look to see what's happening in phenotypes with associated with genetics. That's the whole idea. And of course, the real one, you know, one of the great strengths of the National Haemophilia Database, and I think sometimes we forget how lucky we are in having it, because you only have to, even in, in Europe, for example, when we, when we do collaborations with our colleagues and I say to them, oh, well, this is what our registry has, what does your registry say? And they go, oh, well, we don't, we don't have as good a, we don't know. We don't know how many Willa brands have got this, that, or how many of our haemophilia patients have had concentrate. They don't know. Um, and, but I think, you know, if we can, our, our aim is to enhance that so that you can then go and go, right, well, this is what my patient has, this variant. And then I can look to see what the phenotype is in a more detailed way, in a way kind of like the coagulation factor variant databases do, but probably with more detail. And that's, that's the idea. That's what we want to get to. Really. And then when you die... Does your genetic data stay there to be used by future family generations? Yeah, unless you specifically said you don't want to, unless you unless you want it to be withdrawn. Uh, I'm not aware that anyone has asked for that. Um, but yes, because that's still valuable information because we've captured that information and it's, it's, it's to help us understand the phenotype correlations better in the patients we currently have, so yes. Yeah. And, and do you think that we worry about consent more and information security and, and all of that more than patients and families do? 
We probably worry more about uh, security, yes, because I think that we know that, that you know, in any setup there, there have been breaches in the past and, and we have to deal with the, the fallout from that. And I, you know, having had one or two to deal with myself, it, it causes a lot of work quite, you know, and so we, we have place, you know, steps in place to try and reduce that. And I, you know, it may be that when a patient has to consent or go through the informed consent process, there's an awful lot we've already talked about they have to think about. You know, they may just assume that the security is is good and it is look there is good security i mean the nhd as you know sits behind a, a, what, what was the n3 network now being upgraded to a slightly different network it's hell's own job to get into it so you know it's <laughs> which, um but it is secure in that respect so uh, but to add to that, I think it's our job to worry about how to consent a patient and to make sure that they have all the bits of information available to them. Because There will be bits that they won't think about at all because they haven't ever come across it before. So I think I think it's right that we worry about it. And it's right that we make sure we provide information in a way that's accessible, definitely. And as we sit here on Zoom um, and we're seeing increasingly that we're doing patient follow-up by you know, video consultation, does, yeah. does that concern you about the fact that who knows who's sitting behind the computer and listening? When you're having those very you know, genetically sensitive conversations? I, I think it, it, it does, actually. I mean, I, I think it, I mean, Zoom, at least you can see someone. And if it's someone who you're following up, hopefully you'd recognise them, for example. But it, it has occurred to me on some of the ones that we've done by telephone. I sort of join and I, and I think I'd better just, you know, what's your date of birth type thing? And, and does that, is that something that they would know already? I don't know. But I think, I think you're right. I think uh, it is important to, to have some checks, if you like. And we're probably not as good as that as we should be because we're used to working in, in, in a face-to-face -face environment. So we probably do have to... Uh, raise awareness of that and have that on the agenda yeah and I suppose our colleagues in genetic counselling have probably been doing that for a very long time because they do those very extended families don't they so um, do you think that all the genetic counselling in within the bleeding disorders community should be done by genetic counsellors or should it be done by us or a bit of both <laughs> So I think there are a couple of issues, aren't there? We have sent some of our more complex patients because some of our patients do have other associated um, problems, which requires a greater um, understanding of genetics all, all round to our um, genetics colleagues. But I think in general, because we understand a lot more about the bleeding disorders, I think we provide our, we provide, well, I hope, I think we do, a provide a very good job of doing that um, within the haemophilia community. But I do, we have actually in Oxford, we've got very strong links with our genetics guys and they come over and sit with us and, and give us advice every now and again to say, maybe think about this or whatever. I certainly think um, in, the, in the realms of the, as things shift and move towards more genomic testing, some of their background knowledge that we perhaps are not so familiar with, it's helpful to have you know, intermittent dialogue with them. Um, but I also think it's important to have access to people who aren't. So, for example, some of our some of our um, families that I've met don't want to come to the same centre as their dad or their brother or whoever. And so I think it's sometimes helpful to have someone else to go to. So, yes, we I would say all of us. But I think in general, we provide a pretty good 
service. I, I think it also probably depends upon what the resources are that you have in your own setup, really, because, of course, if you've got a, a, a bunch of highly qualified genetic counsellors just sitting across the way from you, then it doesn't make much sense to not make use of that. But if, on the other hand, it's a bit more distant and you've got your own counsellors, then, you know, you might be able to do some of that here. And in fact, where, where I am, I guess, because I've been quite, although I don't at the moment because the, the post is vacant, uh, we've had a counsellor who I've been able to do the clinic with. I think we've actually been mostly, the, we, we get referrals from the local genetics counselling service because although they've been referred someone, then their ability to kind of the ins and outs of mild haemophilia, say versus moderate, is something which they leave to us. So we, we have done that. But actually, um, until I fill that post, it might be that I would, you know, out, yeah, might need to use genetics. So I think it depends upon what you've got locally set up. Right at the beginning, we talked about the fact that we don't currently get consent from patients to treat them. And I'm very conscious of the fact that you work in a massive gene therapy centre where clearly everybody at the moment is having gene therapy as part of a clinical trial with consent. Do you think as we move forward with um, informed consent, that is, do, as we move forward, that you would consent patients for gene therapy, perhaps a bit like you might a bone marrow transplant now? Well, actually, it's good that you draw that analogy, because I, I guess the, the process of consenting for gene therapy um, does probably follow something uh, as bone marrow transplants would have been at, the, at a similar level of development. Um, but going forwards, yes, I think so. If, if gene therapy, well, obviously we all hope it becomes more our routine clinical practice at some point um, so that we can offer it as a clinical service as opposed to in some other study. But I'm pretty sure that the consent process would need to be as involved as it currently is for something like bone marrow transplantation, which then, of course, means that you've got people who can really discuss all those pros and cons and the potential side effects and how we deal with the side effects. So, yes, I, I think that's a very, that's very likely what you suggested. And, and so that's something we have to be prepared for. From what I remember of doing bone marrow transportation, which was now a very long time ago, uh, the consenting process involved, you know, that's why it's really important to have things like this for HEMNET, because um, clinical nurse specialists, the research team, uh, you know, everyone else involved was involved in that consent process. And I think we often found that the time that people spent meant that they asked a lot of those questions to, well, any, any you know, other members of the team. So I think everyone needs to be involved in that. And so that leads very nicely back into genomics. So very clever people like you that understand what the result means and you send a bit of paper and then there is a nurse specialist or a consultant who maybe only does haemophilia part of the time and gets a result that they don't quite understand how yeah. do we inform patients about all of that if we don't really understand it ourselves well i yeah that's undoubtedly a, a big question and i think part of it is that ultimately with anything new that we're starting up with and this is still relatively new it's about building up that expertise so i think we already have more people who understand genomics than, than, than we did say eight years ago, which is when we first started doing the bridge project. Uh, and there were only a couple of us that did those MDTs. And I think one of the things that we've been, we've been keen to do is to make sure that 
trainees who come along in, in, in hemostasis and hemophilia, we, we identify those who are in, interested and, you know, they get involved in, the, in this process of reporting and understanding variants. But I think, you know, one of the nice things about hemophilia is everyone knows everyone else. And, uh, and I think it's perfectly fine for people to pick up the phone or drop an email to someone. And, you know, I get plenty of those requests. Um, and, you know, can we just discuss this particular case? And, 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 and I think that's fine. I think that's fine. And I think most of us are very happy to, to do that. And I think if someone, we don't expect everyone to know everything. And look, I get, you know, there's some genes that I have looked at so much that I, I just often know the variants. Um, but there's others which I, again, you know, one has to refresh one's knowledge. And, um, and the platelet ones, for example, there are some colleagues who, are, who know more about those than I do. And, uh, you know, I don't have any problem with refreshing that and, answer, and asking people. And similarly, people ask me, and I think that's how we learn. And so I think my final question then is, comes back to haemophilia nursing. And I, I think you would agree that haemophilia nurses are the people who probably have the most day-to-day -day contact with patients. Absolutely, yeah. So the patient is going to come out of your clinic with a bit of paper that says, I've got this mutation, to talk to the nurse who still doesn't really understand it because nobody's teaching the haemophilia nurses. So is well, it something that you think every haemophilia nurse should learn about? Or is there going to be some kind of, I don't know, super centers for genomics or something? <laughs> well, I'd, I'd like to think that in any, in each center, especially our bigger centers, that, you know, in fact, even the smaller center, we have more haemophilia nurses, quite rightly, than we do doctors, because we need more of you than we do of me. And so it's more likely that, um, that someone's going to ask a question of a nurse. And I think they're, you know, within the, within the nursing structure as well, it might not be that everyone has, needs to have the same level of knowledge. It might be that one or two have, you know, more knowledge than others in the same way that one might have more knowledge of pediatrics than adults or one's, one's got more knowledge of gynecology, for example. And I think this might be another thing like that. Um, but I do think there probably does need to be some, yeah, I mean, I think all nurses probably do need to be aware of it because A, they might get asked by the patient, B, I think it probably impacts upon other things, you know, cho treatment choices. And so if you don't know that, then you might be left wondering, well, why are we giving this treatment as opposed to this treatment? And, or why are we not sending this person for gene therapy and we're sending this one? And I think, um, you know, so I think there is some value. And, and as you know, I, I think having some degree, having education there is, is, is absolutely important. But yeah, maybe, maybe sort of within each team, there needs to be a kind of, you know, uh, discussion as to who who is the lead, if you like, for, for that part of the knowledge. So I also think that actually, if you're the person taking the bloods to do these tests, you should have some understanding of what the results might mean. Um, and I think that's probably part of our code of conduct is that we shouldn't be doing that if we don't know what we're doing. So I think it's really important that we continue to learn as you guys are continuing to learn and, and supporting patient education along the way. Yeah, I know, I agree very much so. So I'm delighted that uh, Nikki and Keith joined me today and I'd really like to thank them for their opinions and sharing their practice with us. I hope that you have learnt something along with me. Thank you also to the pharmaceutical companies that sponsor the HeNet educational programme and I hope to see you at the next HeNCast. Thank you for listening. See you again soon.